You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Last couple weeks in Luke have kind of been heavy weeks. I don't think this week is quite as heavy. But here's where I'm encouraged because last week we talked about, in essence, if your brother is wrong to you, you go to your brother. And y'all, the cool thing about so many of y'all is when you're not just hearers of the word, you're doers. And I'm hearing stories all over the place about these people going to other people, talking to people, which means you probably were real sinful before that, by the way. But even still, that you have been, there's been lots of forgiveness. There's been lots of conversations. There's been lots of movement based on last week's text. That is what we are called to do. We're not called to come hear a sermon and kind of let that was great. I like that. And just move. We're called to listen to the scriptures and we're called to act on the scriptures. And it's exciting to see when God's people do that. And he does mighty things when they do. So I, it's just good stuff happening there. Um, turn to Luke 18 if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you where you can pull out your device with your ESV app or whatever app you have. Um, what, I, I love movies and I love good stories. And one of the kind of movies that I really like is when it has that twist, kind of usually at the end, where the bad guy turns out to be the good guy, all right? That, that's a great movie to me, right? I, I love that. So you got, you know, Despicable Me, you got Gru, all right? Steve Carell, for those who are kids, you've seen those movies, right? Maybe you've seen them anyway and you're just embarrassed. But you got, he's, he's the bad criminal. He turns out to be the hero. Love that. You got Iceman in Top Gun, all right? He's, he's the bad guy who turns out to be the okay guy at the end. Right? You can still be my wingman anytime. Right? Yeah, okay, good. You have the T Rex in Jurassic Park. Right? He's the bad guy, but he's kind of the good guy at the end when he takes out the Velociraptors. If you haven't seen it, that's like 20 years old, y'all. Come on. I, don't, I never read these, I never saw these, but there's a guy apparently in Harry Potter called Snape. If you know what I'm talking about, fine. There's a good example. I never read them, so there he is. <laughs> And it's not because, oh, it's witchcraft. I just don't care, okay? Uh, it really has nothing to do spiritual. Uh, nothing. I'm like, oh, Harry Potter's wicked. No, I just don't care. Uh, and then there's the ultimate bad guy who is good, Darth Vader, of course, right? Of course. It's a good guy all along. It's just a great twist. And it's even more shocking, actually, when the, the good guy turns out to be bad. But we don't really care about that right now. Right? More the bad guy, it turns out to be good. That's, the, that's kind of the heart of this book as we've been talking about it. We've called it Fall and Rising based on this prophecy about Jesus. And, and what we've seen is those people who you think are good, who are on the rise, are actually falling. And those people who you think are bad, who, are fa- who you would say are falling, are actually on the rise. It's the good guys are actually the bad guys. The bad guys are actually the good guys. And I think it's no more evident than in chapter 18 of of Luke. And we're going to see very clearly this idea. And we're going to see five individuals or groups of individuals. And some of the ones you would say, those are the bad guy, are actually the good. And some of the ones you're like, oh, that's definitely the good guy. They're actually the bad. Right? And so what Jesus is going to teach us is, what is it that makes this bad guy good and this good guy bad? Because we want to be on the rise. We, we don't want to be the ones falling. We want to be the ones rising and how we respond to Jesus. So let's look at some classic good slash classic bad guys. 
famous passages all throughout chapter 18. We're just going to be a, a, a 50,000 foot view. But we want to highlight some of these things. Where we're at in the context of the story is Jesus is almost to Jerusalem. All right. Next week, we're going to see him arrive. So he's about, you know, maybe eight, nine, ten days out from the cross. And as he's getting closer, his opponents are getting madder. It doesn't help that he's calling out their good guys all the time. Right. Um, and so let's just jump in and look at the first two in verse nine. And we'll just work through the text and highlight some things at the end. Verse nine. Is this thing working today? Nope. You might have to run my slides, y'all. I know you hate that, but this ain't working. All right, verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So, so we get two people we're gonna be introduced to, but Jesus is gonna tell a parable to people who think they are studs, who thinks that, that their stuff do not stink, that they are super spiritual, and because they are super spiritual, everybody else is not. He tells you right up front, that's what he's doing. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. Here's our two guys. One Pharisee, the other a tax collector, right? So here's our two people. Now, I've told you before, and, and some of you just, you know, it's hard for us culturally to get this, all right? But the Pharisee, when you hear Pharisee in the church, you're like, ooh, bad. Right? That's what you think, is you, you grew up in the church and you're a good legalist or whatever, you know your Bible. Right? When they hear Pharisee, they think Billy Graham. That's what they're thinking. You got to get in their heads. They don't think bad guy. These are the ones who 400 years earlier saved the nation's neck. They're the ones who kept the faith when everything was falling apart. I mean, if you were looking for someone to take your daughter to prom, it would be a Pharisee because you know she'd be home by 11. You know that they'd be dancing like this the whole night. <laughs> he doesn't do bad things. He's a good dude. You want him teaching Sunday school. You want him as your Uber driver. That's this guy. He's their good guy. And the, the other guy, the tax collector, he's the bad guy. Think Osama bin Laden. That's what they hear when they hear tax collector. These is the guys, when Rome takes over, they say, are y'all hiring? I'll come work for you. And they would go work for Rome, and they know where you live now, and they know all about you because they're your neighbor. And so when Rome says, I want you to collect $100 from them, and I don't care how much you take, but $100 from them goes to us. You can take whatever you want. So they'd go. They know where your house is. They know where your hunting cabin is. They can find you. They'd show up and say, give me $200. Rome wants $200. But really only Rome wanted $100. So they give their 100 to Rome, and they get rich while their own people are starving. And they're living in luxury, and their own people are eating onion soup. So they were despised. Good guy, Pharisee. Bad guy, tax collector, in their minds. They both go to the temple to pray. I think it's the back screen, y'all, because I think you guys got the verses up there. Yep, verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee standing by himself... All right, this could be translated, by the way, he's praying to himself. Either way, some of your translations say that. But the Pharisee standing by him or praying, by, praying to himself said thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that dude over there. Okay, the mention of God is probably just, you know, like you have to do it. Because he really is not praying to God. What he's saying is, God, I am happy to be me. Aren't I great? I mean, how great am I? 
And then he, he gives his resume. Verse 12, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Twice a week was more than they had to do. They didn't have to fast twice a week. He's going above them. I tithe off of everything. No one does that. And don't say you do. Get your birthday money. You don't tithe off your birthday money. No, you don't. He tithes off his birthday money. He gets that like $8 rebate check from AT&T. You paid $8 too much. He, tech, he ties 80 cents. You don't do that. Right? He's, I, he's a good dude. Right? That's what he's saying. He does what he's supposed to do. I'm better. I'm better than everyone else. And what he's done in his mind, y'all, is he's created a category of people that does not exist. So he's like, there's God, and he's going to admit God is, is holy and I'm not. He's I'm not God. Okay, I get that. But I'm not that dude either. Because I am not as sinful as that dude. I mean, I am not him. So he's created a middle category. There's God. There's the bad person. I'm kind of the, the good person. But he, mis, he misunderstands the degree from, between essence and degree. Degree of sin, yeah, he's a bit greater sinner than me. That's fine. But the essence of man is that all have sinned and fall short. He misses that all part. You may be the great sinner, you may be the little sinner, you're still the what? Sinner. And you're not God. He misses that. And because he does, he looks down on everyone who's not like him, that doesn't have his pedigree. Right? Let's look at the next guy. The Pharisee. Pharisee standing by himself. He prayed this. He, would, he, would, he stood far off. He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, he's in the temple. He's in the corner. He's not up front by the altar. He's hiding. He won't even raise his eyes to heaven. He's beating on his chest. And he just says, guilty. Everything they say about me is true, God. Everything. He has a keen self-awareness. He, he feels the disparity between God and himself. He's not bartering. God, look what I've done. Look what I'm going to do. What I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do. He just says, guilty, I need mercy. I need mercy. I am bad. I am, I am wicked. And so Jesus' statement, I, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the bad guy, went to his house justified rather than the other. And that's when the audience would have been like, oh, how can that be? How can Darth Vader be good? Right? And he tells him. Four, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not the one who's got the resume that is good. It's the one who, his resume is empty. It just says sinner on his resume. Why? Why? Because of humility. Which one has humility? It is his humility. The one that says, I need mercy. I cannot compete. Jesus says, he's on the end. He's on the end. And this guy who has all the good deeds and knows the Bible back and forth, he is out. That's shocking. Let's go to the next group. Verse 15. Now they're bringing even infants to him. The word is for babies. That's why it's translated infants, okay? So these are little guys. And since they're bringing them to him, if it was modern day, you'd have the mama with the sling, you know, or the little double stroller or something, right? They're not walking up. They're not toddlers yet. They are being carried to Jesus. 
so that he can touch them. And the idea there is that he would pray for them. They're bringing their babies up to Jesus to pray so he can pray. He can lay his hands on them and pray. Right? And so you can just picture Jesus. He's holding this little baby, little eight-week-old baby. What's his name? Oh, his name is Jacob. Oh, I have a brother named Jacob. Jesus is playing with the babies. I make him smile. Right? Real sweet picture. And, and then the disciples step in. Right? Verse 15. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Lady, get that stinky, nasty baby out of here. Get, get it. Back in line, lady. Peter, you're supposed to filter these people better. What are you doing? You can't let these, these babies get up to Jesus. He's got much more important things to do. And it says they rebuked people. They're telling these ladies with their little sweet little babies, get away. Jesus doesn't have time for them, in essence. And Mark's gospel is great. It says that Jesus was indignant towards them. Right? Now, what's going on? See, the disciples think that, that baby ministry is JV ministry. And Jesus is not JV. Jesus is varsity. And so we don't have time for JV. Babies, they're, they're kind of the bad guys. Right? I mean, it's not, we're not going to say that. But that's what we really think, right? And we do that in church sometimes. It's only, it's only second graders. They can eat stale cookies. It doesn't matter. It's, oh, we don't really need, you know, we, we don't need to do anything. Just throw a movie on for them. It's only middle schoolers. What do they know? It's just, just babies. Or maybe it's a mom. It's like up to her elbows in laundry and, 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 and crying children. I'm just a mom. And there's this mentality, and, and, and their, their heart is the same as our heart. We sometimes fall into this trap. We wouldn't say it, but we do it, that your value is based on what you can offer, right? What you can do, that's where your value is. So what, what do I bring to the table? And everyone knows that babies are takers. All mamas know that there is, they don't give, they're not like, hey, mama, I'll change my own diaper. I appreciate y'all. I'll just run to the fridge of my own and get some food. You just stay sleeping. I know it's 2.30 in the morning. I feel for you, mama. No, see, they don't do that. They wake up and they let you know they are uncomfortable in some way. They're takers, right? And so the disciples are like, this is not, this is a waste of our time, right? You need to be, you need to be doing something important, Jesus. And so verse 16, Jesus called to them and said, and notice he's calling to the babies. He's calling to the kids, saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder him. Why? Such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He actually says, no, this is not a waste of time. This is actually the way into the kingdom. Right? This is, you want to get in? This is the way in. The little, just like the little kids. And there's a lot of talk of what does that mean? Is it their baby's humility? Is it the baby's faith? And, and maybe there's some elements of that. I think the text hints at what the idea here is. These babies have to be brought to him. They are completely and utterly helpless. That's the idea. The baby wants to eat. Mama has to feed him. The baby wants to move. Mama's got to move him. The baby wants to be changed. Mama's got to change. The baby wants something. Mama, they are helpless. Right? Helpless. The way into the kingdom, you got to come helpless. 
not dependent. That's the opposite of what we want, right? That's the opposite. What, what is it about the, 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 the disciples thinking, this is a waste of time. We don't have time for these guys. They don't bring us anything. They don't have anything to offer. That's the way we are. We like the independent, capable, strong, pull yourself up by your bootstraps guy. It's no nonsense. I don't have to deal with him. I don't have to counsel him. They're not going to cry all day long. They're not needy. That's what we're attracted to. And Jesus says, that's actually not what we're looking for. We're looking for helplessness. Which is exactly the opposite of the guy that comes next. Verse 18. And a ruler asked him. So what you have now is this guy strolls up. Right? And he is an impressive dude. And when you put all the gospels together, you find out three things about him. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. All right. All three things are super impressive to us. My equivalent is this is Tim Tebow. Even Georgia fans can't hate Tim Tebow. Come on. I, if you're a Christian, you can't. Okay. I mean, I'm a Phillies fan. He's a Met and I still like the dude. Okay. So if I can do it, you can do it, Georgia fans. All right. But he is rich. He is young and he has authority. And you know the disciples are like, we need this guy. I bet he's got a fat pad on the Sea of Galilee somewhere. We can use that on weekends. Jesus, grab this guy. Make him one of us. 13's in a good number, right? It's unlucky, but you're, you're good for that, right? He's, he's, there's something about him that everyone would want to be with, Right? And so he comes with a question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is, he's not trying to trick Jesus. He's not, he has got an honest question, y'all. This is not some guy that's like a Pharisee or something. And he has a great question. What do I do to inherit? What he's saying is, how good do I got to be to get to heaven? What do I have to do to earn my salvation? Right? Can, what, what, what rules do I have to keep? You know, his idea is he has to do something. Right? How do I earn it? What hoops do I need to jump in? And Jesus said to him, verse 19, why do you call me good? He doesn't answer the question initially. He called him good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. God alone is good. And, and, and Jesus is deflecting a little bit because he wants them to chew on that before he gets into the answer of his question. He wants them to think about that statement. Only God is good. And if I'm good, mm-hmm, you put the two together. But then he says, verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor father and mother. He quotes number five through nine of the big 10. Those which deal with your relationship with other people, right? Commandments five through nine. One through four, the relationship with God. Five through nine, relationship with people. Actually, verse number 10 too. But he says, hey, do these. And then verse 21, he has this, it's really an arrogant statement. He says, I've kept all these. I got that t-shirt, y'all. I mean, that's, that's kind of a bold statement, right? I've kept the Big Ten my whole life, sir. Got it. Especially since Jesus has taken it to the next level and saying it's about the heart. But, but either way, Jesus responds when he hears, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. See, this, this is brilliant of Jesus. When he says, you know the commandments, he only quotes five through nine. And so the guy says, oh, I've done all that. And he says, okay, well, what about number 10? 
What about that whole don't covet, don't be greedy, don't be all about yourself? And how about that? What's about that first commandment? What's that first commandment? That, that you should have no other gods before me? And the second commandment, which says you should not bow down and worship other gods. How about those? So you think you've kept the law. So let's just see. Give away all your stuff. And then follow me. Because you've said I'm God. And since you said good, you said you're good. And you, so now, now we've established that I'm God. So if I'm God, you have no other gods before me. Me being God says, sell everything you have. Right? It's, it's beautiful logic. Jesus is brilliant in his, in his just presentation of this guy. Verse 23, he heard these things. He becomes very sad. Why? Because he's loaded. He's rich. And Jesus, by the way, is not saying the way into heaven is sell everything and, go and, and you know, give it to the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to get this guy to see that he really hasn't kept the law. Because no one can keep the law. In fact, the point of the law was to show you you can't keep the law so you get to Jesus. So that you cry out mercy like the tax collector. But this guy thinks I can do it. I have done it. And so he says, he walks away very sad because he's rich. And he see that he really didn't want what Jesus had to offer. He wants his money. That's his God. So verse 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know some of you have heard some story. Well, there's a gate in Jerusalem that's called the, the eye of the needle. No, there's not. He's talking about a needle. It's a figure of speech, right? A camel going through the eye of a needle. You're like, that can't happen. He's like, yeah, that's the point. Okay, that's, that's kind of the idea. It's not like, oh, yeah, there's this gate that the camel needs to kind of get his hump through, and then it's fine. No, it's not the case. Don't be so super spiritual. He's saying it's hard for a rich guy to get to heaven. Why? Because he doesn't see his need. He, he's comfortable. He's happy. Why does the gospel thrive in places where people have nothing, but in places like America, everyone's like, ho-hum, you got to go a whole hour? I got to get, get somewhere to church. Why is it? Because we're comfortable. It's not impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. We're going to see next week a, little, a wee little man, a wee little man as he named Zacchaeus, is a rich dude who's going to get to heaven. So it's not impossible. And, and he says that what's, what's impossible for man is possible with God. But the point is this, that which we desire, what we would say, that is good, rich, powerful, handsome, young, that's the good guy. Jesus says, actually, he's out. The capable, pull your up by your bootstraps. This guy that everyone wants to be around, he's out and the babies are in. Why do you, that's why he puts them right next to each other. There's this contrast. Here's super capable, absolutely helpless. Which one you want on your kickball team? I want this guy. No, this guy. That's the point, right? It's, it's, it's see how opposite the kingdom works and Jesus' kingdom is, right? I mean, the good guy, we, the guy, though everyone would say the good guy for the world is the outwardly righteous, the super spiritual, the rich, powerful guy. Jesus says that's actually the bad guy. Who's the good guy? The broken sinner, the rebel, and then the helpless baby. They're the good guys. You're like, that's crazy. That's what he's saying. And then we got one more guy at the end of the chapter. Jump down to verse 35. He drew near to Jericho. And a blind man was sitting by the road begging. So when you're blind in that day, there's no government programs. There's no, you know, help publicly. You're just a beggar. 
That's all. That's your only hope, right? Your life is a beggar. In verse 36, and hearing a crowd go by, he acquired what, what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Right, so here's the crowd. He can't see, obviously. He's, standing, he's sitting at the gate of Jericho, which is a rich city. So it's a good, it's a good place for him to beg. Here's people coming. He's like, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know, he has heard that name. He, he's heard rumors. He's heard about the Galilean who, who can heal people. And, and he's heard great stories. And maybe he believes some. And maybe he's like, there's no way that happened. And he raised a dead, a dead man and all that. But he's, he's heard stories. And so he starts crying out. His response is huge. Right? He, what does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. But you say, wait a minute. Jesus, son of David. David's, Jesus' daddy was Joseph. Right? And how does he know that anyway? He, don't even remember, he never met the dude. See, what you got to understand is, this, this is huge, y'all. He's saying, Jesus, son of David. That is a messianic title. He is saying, I believe, even though I've never met you, I've never heard you preach, I've never read the Bible because they don't have Braille yet. I have come to the conclusion in my blindness that you who I've heard about from hundreds of miles away are actually the Messiah of Israel. So Messiah, have mercy on me. It is a huge statement, right? And notice again, he appeals to God's mercy. He's not his merit. I, I deserve this. I'm a son of Abraham. Have mercy, just like the tax collector. Right? And, and, and I love the response of the people. This is so Christian. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They're like, hush, dude. Beggar, take $3 and go to McDonald's. Hush. This is, don't you know who's coming down the road? This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's important. He's got more important things to do than, than you. Hush. But the more they tried to shut him up, the louder he yelled. I love it. Jesus! Just louder and louder every time. They cannot keep him quiet. This is his one chance, y'all. This is one chance. He may never see Jesus, hear Jesus again. Right? And so he's just yelling at the top of his lungs. But again, notice that the crowd, who's the bad guy? The beggar. They don't want to be with him. They want him out of the way. Get out of the way. Here's two bucks. Get out of my face. You smell. You stink. You're useless. You can't work. You're just a, you're bleeding society. That's their view of this guy. Right? But he's crying out all the more. Right? And so Jesus hears him and responds. And Jesus stopped. Verse 40. And he, and he commands him to be brought to him. And if you read Mark's gospel, uh, he, he, some guy comes up to the, to, his name is Bartimaeus, by the way, this, this beggar we find out. And there's actually two of them, but Luke focuses on one because only one speaks. But he, he's sitting there and the guy comes up, hey, take heart. He's, he's calling for you. And Bartimaeus kind of jumps up and throws off his jacket and books it to Jesus. And he comes to him and he, when, he, when he gets near, he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? Don't, don't think that Jesus doesn't know what he wants him to do for him. Okay, he's the son of God. Okay, so, but he's trying to elicit his faith out loud. This guy believes that not only can Jesus do this, he's hoping that he will do this. And so he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, 
recover your sight. With a word, your faith has made you well. And can you imagine that moment? Some suggested this guy had lost his eyesight when he was young. We don't know for sure because the word recover could be translated, you know, restore or for the, you know, but whatever. Either way, can you imagine being blind and then all of a sudden having 20-20 and now you see color? What if he'd never seen before in his life? It's the first time he sees what a person looks like. Trees, the sky, the sun. It would be just overwhelming. And he rejoices like you would. Immediately he recovered his sight, followed him, glorifying God. And and all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise. Now they were rebuking him. Now they're like, okay, that was good. That was pretty impressive. All right, okay. We should have not done that, maybe. And by the way, this guy in church history, we don't know for sure because church history is not inspired, but this man Bartimaeus went on to be a leader and a significant fellow in the early church. But, but think about it. What is it about this guy? I mean, if you compare him to the guy that came before. So you got the rich guy and you got the beggar. You got the super clean, dressed super nice. You got the guy in rags. You got the one who everybody is rebuking and that the one who everybody wants to be near, right? The guy that says, I've, I've kept all your commandments. The guy that says, have mercy. The guy that says, Jesus, you're a good guy. This guy says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Right? See the difference? And, and, and what makes this guy, even though you would not really want to be part of his deal because he's a reject, what makes him a part of the good team is that he's desperate. He's desperate. Which, that's just a negative word, isn't it? Right? I mean, even in just plain language, well, I'm not going to take her to the prom. She's desperate. I mean, you know, it's just, there's nothing good about desperate, except for Jesus says it's a kingdom value. Right? When you come to the point where there is no plan B, where it's either mercy or I'm done, Jesus says, that's a good place. And when you come to a place where you're like, I think I'm pretty good. I kept all the commandments. I have all I need. I'm rich. I'm this, I'm that. He said, that's a bad place. How opposite is the kingdom? The bad guys are the moral, Bible-knowing, back and forth, do all the right stuff, capable, got it all together guys. And the good guys are the broken, sinful, helpless, can't do it for themselves children, Blind, desperate beggars. And you see why they killed him? I mean, because that's who they're, he's talking about them. But he's been talking about it from the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. They seem like these are bad and they're actually the values of the kingdom of God, right? Let me give you some questions to think about as we move to worship. And we're going to celebrate the table. And, and maybe some of these are good for your community groups. Maybe they're good for your soul. I don't know. But just let me kind of go through a couple questions. Question number one, what do you have on your spiritual resume? Your spiritual LinkedIn, I guess resumes. I haven't written a resume in like since I was 16 or something, but 
is it LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. People request me on LinkedIn. I'm like, really? Do you want to be on staff at the church? I don't even know what that means. But what is on your spiritual LinkedIn, your spiritual resume? Because what we do often, and we do this in everything, we use things as kind of like battering rams to make us feel better so that we can look down. And we do it all sorts of things. So we do it in education. Well, you, I, I go to this school and I went to, oh, I went to Ivy League and you went to public school, blah, blah, blah. Or we do it with money. We do it with cars. Or you use a, you use a PC, I use a Mac, which is actually a pretty good reason to do that. Um, but whatever it is, we, we look down because I do this. I have this education. I have this. I'm from this side of the tracks. And, and we do it with our Christianity all the time. They, I can't believe their family does that. Did you see what their kids did? Did you see what she wore to prom? Did you see, did you see what, they, what they bought? They're, they're going to spoil their kids. Did you, I can't believe that they would go spend that much money on a vacation. Blah, blah, blah. Down the road, I can't believe we would never do. Or if they were super spiritual, they'd be serving in this ministry because I serve in this ministry. And this is where real Christians serve. And, and, it, and it sounds real nice, but it sounds just like it sounds just like the Pharisee. I thank God that I fast twice a week. I go to three Bible studies. I have the King James Version, right? And they read the NIV. Bad, right? But here's what, I, here's what I'll tell you. And we do it with all sorts of spiritual things, and we all do it. But if, if you're listing your resume on the things that you've accomplished for Jesus then you got to be very careful because those may be the very things that you're trusting when you're not trusting in Jesus. You could be putting your faith in your resume and not in the gospel. And which one goes home justified? Not this dude. It is the one with the empty resume that goes home righteous. Right? And no, no church can function long-term with a bunch of people looking down their noses at everyone else because they're different and they do different and they're not as righteous and spiritual as them. You may be confusing essence and degree like this other guy. Well, I am not God, but I am not as bad as that guy. Here's another question. Does it bother you when people come to this church that you know are not good folks? When you know you saw them down on Market Street at 1 a.m., stumble around. And then you see him on Sunday morning. Are you like, we better move on the other side, honey, because this place can get struck by lightning sometime during service. When you look at someone that maybe smells of the world or you know what they're doing, are you like, why are you here? Here's one that we do sometimes. I've heard it all the time. Not as much here, thankfully, at our church, but I'm, I'm not going to put my kids in in that program because I, their, their kids are in there and I know what their kids are like. I, that middle school class has got 55 students and then I know 20 of them and they're wild. Look, and I'm not saying throw your kids to the wolves, but if one place they should be interacting with other people would be there because we got some supervision and they play games and eat hot dogs. There's not too much dangerous in there. But it's the idea of I'm better. It sneaks in, y'all. It does. Here's another question. Do you show partiality to, to, to those who can give you something? So we're going to give them more attention because this person has nothing to offer. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from them. But this person, they can make my life better. Right? James says that's wicked. 
Or, or do you know that this person is a taker and they are a taker and they are a taker and you're just like, oh, uh, coffee with them is never coffee with them. It's a feast of nine hours of hearing them chat. So I'm going to stay over here with this guy that's not super needy. It's partiality. It's, 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 it's rooted in all these things. It's rooted in humility. You, and if you want to start seeing yourself cultivate this kind of humility and love for each other, start serving someone that is different than you. Right? I mean, seriously, serve someone who is not your demographic, who is not your background, who is not your socioeconomic status. There's plenty of opportunities in this church or elsewhere. But serve someone that's different than you. That can't give you, oh, that doesn't have anything to offer to make you feel good. It's a good way to start cultivating humility. Here's another question. Do you pray? Do you pray? You say, well, why? Yeah, of course I do. I'm a Christian. I pray every meal. I'm not talking about that. If you are truly desperate and helpless or you see yourself that way, you have no other choice but to pray. Desperate, dependent, helpless people pray. Wait, wait, pray about the sin that you should be fighting. And if you're not fighting sin, then you're losing. But, but so, Lord, I, I don't want to go today and do X again. Lord, help me. Praying for your kids. Lord, I am not the greatest father, but I just want, I want you to grab the hearts of my children. Praying for wisdom, praying for guidance, praying for protection, praying for strength, whatever it is. But if you're not praying, you are not helpless, or you are, but you don't see yourself that way, and you are, you're not having an impact, and you're not growing. It's, it's a huge piece. Are you praying for, are you asking for forgiveness for sin? Christians repent, they confess. Lord, have mercy. If you're never confessing sin, if you're never repenting of sin, then you're probably growing more arrogant and you're not becoming more, more like Christ in humility. Because sinners, the, more, the closer you get to God, the more you see the disparity between you and God and, and you cry out, Lord, have mercy. And I'm not saying walking around, woe is me. I'm just talk, walking around like you, there's sin that you didn't even know was there because you're getting closer. Do you pray? Another question, last question. Do you resist times of humbling? Do you run away from them? You know, the worst thing, I, I remember, I haven't done this in a while, but when I used to play a lot of athletics, isn't the worst thing in the world after you lose, having to go shake the hands and say, good game, 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 right? Isn't that the worst? It's always easy when you win. Good game, good game, good game, good game. Kicked your butt, good game, ha, 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 good game. That's easy. There's just something humiliating about it. It's like when you, and I never ran for office or a class president or anything, it's the concession speech. It's like, well, I lost, sorry. I really don't like the guy, but I'm going to congratulate him. It's just something humbling about that. But it is a good thing, which is why, by the way, you should let your children lose. And you should keep score. should be no leagues that someone doesn't lose. Everyone wins, then that's not the world. That's another story. Let's go on. Okay. God brings times of humbling to your lives because he loves you and he doesn't want you to destroy yourself. And so I know it's hard when the business fails or relationships go sour. Some of you, when you're sitting on the bench for the first time in your life, you didn't get the easy A. The business deal didn't happen. You got fired. You got demoted. And I know you think it's the worst thing in the world. Let me suggest to you it's actually one of the best things in the world because it's teaching you helplessness 
and dependence. And it's what God wants to teach, right? It's, it, it's, it's a lesson we have to learn because if we continue to have pride and arrogance, we will destroy ourselves. And so God is teaching it. And, and, and I, I, let me suggest you should be cultivating regular times of this. You should be wanting God. You should be asking God, God, strip me of my pride. Humil- teach me humility. It's a hard prayer, but it only happens when we're seeking it. And, and get, I suggest that you should get some regular time alone where, where, where God can just shed you of your arrogance and your confidence and let that melt away. There's a great scene in one of the lesser read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. It's probably in the top three of the greatest scenes in the whole Chronicles of Narnia. It's when Eustace, who is a rotten boy, right? He's spoiled rotten. He finds himself there in Narnia and he's got, he finds himself with this great treasure and he falls asleep on top of this treasure, dreaming of how awesome it is and how rich he's going to be. And when he wakes up, he's a dragon. And he put this little bracelet on his arm when he was a little boy. But now that he's a dragon, it's constricting his arm and it's, it's just digging into his arm. and It's painful. He cannot get it off. Right? And so he starts weeping hot dragon tears, as, as Lewis says so well. He can't do anything about it until Aslan shows up. Aslan, who pictures Jesus, obviously, for you, if you know the story. And he takes him up to this garden on top of a mountain where there is a well. And there's some steps down into the well. And Eustace, as a dragon, just longs to go down into the well and soak his arm because he thinks it would help. And he, and he goes to do it, and Aslan says, first you need to undress. You got to get undressed. He's like, oh, of course. So he starts just tearing away at his, at his scales with his dragon claws. And just when he thinks he's done, he starts to go down. He sees, wait, I got more scales and I got more scales. And time and time again, he tries to tear off his own scales and tear off his own scales. And he just, it went, finally, he gets helpless. And he's like, I cannot do it. I will always be this dragon. I will always be uh, in this pain and this agony. And Aslan says, would you let me undress you? And let me read what, what Lewis so well says. It says that, so desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down on his back. And laying anxious on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself with the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it wasn't lying on the grass. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than any others have been. And there I was as smooth and soft as peeled, switch and smaller than I had been. And he caught hold of me. I didn't like it much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a minute. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone away from my arm. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. And afterwards, Aslan himself dresses him in new clothes. This is a great picture that, we, that Jesus wants to shed you of your confidence and your pride and make you new if you let him. 
brokenness, helplessness, humility, desperation. They don't sound too good, but that's actually the good guy. That's what we want to be. And I think there's no better way to do that than to remember the table, to to cultivate a reminder in our heart that Jesus had to sacrifice himself because of you. So the gospel, one of the reasons we celebrate it through the table, that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, to remember you were sinful and Jesus died. And so the men are going to get ready. Matt, you can come on up and lead us. Let me pray. And then we're going to celebrate the table and worship together this morning. Father, I pray as your church that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand and that you would exalt us at the proper time. I pray for those who are looking down, for those who think that they have kept the law, for those who think that they are good, that they would be reminded that there was no one good but God, that we are here to worship you and what you have done for us on our behalf. And so as we take this table, let us be reminded of that and let it just remind us of your goodness and our brokenness in Christ's name.